Well, the college that I studied uh, theology at uh, is one in Sydney. It's called Sydney Missionary and Bible College, and it has a campus called Robertsdale Campus. Uh, Roberts and Dale were two missionaries who were martyred, uh, having gone out of the, the campus, out of the college, to serve God in the world. One of them was a bloke called Stan Dale. I've got a picture of him. Uh, and he went and ministered uh, in what was then Dutch New Guinea in what is now called Papua. Um, and um, he, while he was trying to reach a new village in a new valley, uh, was killed by a shower of arrows unleashed by the villagers as he uh, and his companion approached. When they uh, discovered uh, Dale's body, uh, they found with him his New Testament. Uh, and the New Testament had an, uh, an arrow lodged into it. And the point of the blade of the arrow had stopped in Matthew 16:24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now, it's a, a tragic story, but a remarkable story. Uh, and it, it illustrates for us that suffering uh, as disciples of Jesus is a natural part of the Christian ecosystem. We heard it in our Bible reading from 1 Peter, didn't we? Peter says, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal you're experiencing. Don't be surprised because you are participating in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. Suffering is part of our lives, particularly as Christians. For you, that right now might mean that your workplace is just a hard place to work because you're constantly being challenged in your Christian beliefs. Uh, it can simply mean that you're suffering as a result of living in a world that is afflicted by the fall. We suffer. Uh, the question we often as Christians struggle with is why? Why is this happening? Why should we suffer? If God is a good God and he's powerful, why does it happen? That is a good question to ask. Uh, we're, not, we're not actually going to be answering that this morning. Because I think there's an equally good question, and that is how? How do we suffer? And I think David gives us some uh, examples as to how to do this. David, as we heard in the kids' talk, was God's anointed king. Uh, the kingdom was his, uh, but he continued to have to live life in the kingdom of Saul. And that was, a king, that was a life of suffering for him. You see David in these chapters constantly on the run from the murderous Saul. In fact, uh, if you were to read all these chapters, you see him just uh, running from Gibeah to Nob, from Nob to Gath, from Gath to a cave, from a cave to Moab, from Moab to a forest in Hireth, from Hireth to Kilia, from Kilia to Ziph. He's just constantly moving. Um, and as he does that, we learn something as to how we live life in a world that we suffer. How, how do we live like David in a kingdom of Saul? How do we live like David in a kingdom of Saul? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at today. And I think what we first of all learn is that in spite of our suffering, God is there with us, giving us his goodness to taste and see 
God is there with us in our suffering, giving us his goodness to taste and see. Uh, I want us to see this in four ways. The first is there in chapter 21. We had it acted out. Uh, David goes to the city of Nob, which is basically the priestly city at the time, uh, and he's alone. And Ahimelech, the priest, is concerned because he's a high-ranking military officer alone. He shouldn't be alone. What's going on? Uh, David tells a bit of a fib. He says that he's on some secret assignment. Now, this isn't um, excusing David for lying. It's just saying that he did lie. But what he really wants is some food. He says there in verse 3, Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can. Now the problem for David and Ahimelech is there is bread there, but it's holy bread. Uh, It's called bread of the presence. If you went and looked at Leviticus, you'd see it was bread that was baked once a week and replaced, and it was bread that only priests should have been eating. And so Ahimelech finds himself in a bit of a bind. Do I give this holy bread to David, who's not a priest? Uh, He asks David if his men uh, are clean, uh, and David says yes. And so he's moved, I think, by a sense of compassion to David and gives him the bread. Later on, we also see him give David uh, uh, Goliath's old sword because he needs that. Now, I often have read this and kind of wondered, why do we need to know about this? It's just some bread and a sword. It just seemed like, I would think, small tokens. But isn't that how... God's goodness often comes to us in suffering. Small tokens of his goodness. It doesn't get us out of our suffering, but it does sustain us in our suffering, doesn't it? These small little tokens of God's goodness that when we actually look at them through the eyes of faith, we can see God present with us. Think about it perhaps uh, I, I know I've spoken to people in the past who've, who've, re- who've been in a moment where they have received very bad news and yet in that moment a Christian friend is there with them when ordinarily they wouldn't be. It's a token of God's goodness. Think about uh, we have a, another member of our church who's struggling with bad health and uh, has had some incidents where he's collapsed over the last few months. He's collapsed once while sitting on his sofa and the second time in his bed. Now, if you're going to collapse, they're the right place to be, aren't they? Small tokens of the goodness of God that remind us that God is there with us, don't they? And see, when we're in the middle of our suffering, we actually need eyes to see God at work in that way because these aren't just little things that we can just kind of forget about. No, this is God's goodness to us, something to sustain us through it. That's the first thing we see of God's goodness. It comes in provision, doesn't it? The second thing we see of God's goodness uh, is that it comes in small deliverances. Um, You have this hilarious story, which is somewhat funny, of David, Goliath, sword in hand, going to Gath. Now, where is Goliath from? He's from Gath. Um, And so David, I think it shows you something of his mindset, thinks, well, where am I going to go on the run? I know... I'll go to the city of the giant that I killed, waving his sword around. (laughs) Not not a smart move, was it? Um, And yet in this moment, we see God continually be at work. David doesn't really know what to do because they recognise him, they sing his song. 
Um, and so what does he do? Well, he's at wit's end and actually appears to be at wit's end. He starts drooling down his beard, scratching at the doors, pretends to be mad. You think, wow, things are going really badly for David here. But the king of Achish takes it, doesn't he? He says something like, I have enough madmen in my kingdom, just get rid of this bloke. And so he escapes. Now, this is not an accident, is it? This is not just kind of wise thinking from David. No, David has got himself in a real bind here. And in fact, when David writes a psalm reflecting on this moment, this is how he understands it. Psalm 34 is written to reflect on this moment. Psalm 34 verse 7. The angel of the Lord, David says, encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. See, this is what I would call a small deliverance because David hasn't managed to ultimately deal with Saul's murderous threats. But he has got out of this bind in Gath, hasn't he? It's this moment where God has delivered him and he's delivered him in spite of David's foolishness. And, and we experience kind of things like that. Things, again, that don't necessarily get us out of our, out of our um, suffering, but they're small deliverances. You know, perhaps it's financial hardship and all of a sudden an amount of money comes to you in some way that, you know, isn't enough to set you up for life, but it's enough to get you through the week. It's enough to get you through the day. It's a small deliverance from God and we see here God's goodness. We also see God's goodness in his providence. So we've seen his provision in his small deliverances. We we see it in his providence. Um, what is providence? Uh, well, it's kind of one of those words we, we, we talk about where God is sovereignly at work throughout history and the world for the good of his people. And you see this um, as David continues from Gath and goes to a cave where his family meet him. So you see that in chapter 22, verse 1. His family come to him while David's hiding in a cave and David's like, well, this isn't a good place for my mum and dad. Um, If I'm on the run, I want them to be safe. And so where does he take them? Well, he takes them, verse 3, to Mizpah in Moab and says to the king of Moab, will you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab And they stayed there with him as long as David was in the stronghold. Now this is not a a, a kind of normal thing for him to do. Moab were enemies of Israel. So if you just look three chapters back in 1 Samuel 18, Saul is attacking Moab. And here David is bringing his family, David an Israelite is bringing his family to Moab for safety. Why, Why does he do that? And why does the king of Moab take him on. Well, I can't help thinking about David's bloodlines. See, because we're introduced to a Moabitess in the Bible by the name of Ruth. Ruth was a a woman who married into Israel and became an Israelite woman. And she's actually the great-grandmother of King David. Now, they're pretty handy bloodlines to have, aren't they? When you want to go to your enemy the Moabite, and ask them to look after the Moabites and ask them to look after your family. Now, again, that's not a coincidence. That's not just sheer luck, is it? That's not chance. No, that is God's providence. That is God acting 
in history for the good of his people. See, Ruth left Moab and went to Israel decades, generations earlier, and yet here we see something of the fruit of that. It works for the good of David. And you hear these kind of stories happen all the time. Stories of God's providence. There was a story that I heard uh, of the Second World War where there was an English pilot who came across a Jew who was fleeing from the, from the Nazis um, and he needed to be flown uh, to a nearby city so he could get away. And the pilot did that. He risked his life to do it. Uh, and then the pilot said farewell to the Jew uh, and flew back to the UK where he continued to, to fight in the Battle of Britain. While fighting in the Battle of Britain as a pilot, his plane was hit and it crashed and he received these significant wounds, particularly around his chest, which meant that the doctors basically said, you're going to die. So there he lay on his bed, basically waiting to die, uh, when uh, a surgeon who was in the UK at the time heard of his plight uh, and was able to come and operate and ultimately save the guy. Now, whose face should the pilot see when he opens his eyes other than the Jew who he had saved earlier? Again, we could say that's coincidence, but that's not the way the Bible talks about these types of things. It says, actually, no, God is actually sovereignly at work. He intervenes in history. He controls history for the good of his people. He does that in our suffering. So God... God goodness comes in provision, in small deliverances, in his providence. Finally, we see God's goodness come to David in his word. Time and time again in this story, God's word comes to David. God's gone silent on Saul, but it comes to David. Chapter 22, verse 5, Gad the prophet gives him God's word. Chapter 23, verse 3, God gives him a word to go back to attack the Philistines. Chapter 22, verse 10, God gives him word that the Kaelites will hand him over to Saul. Chapter 23, verse 17, Jonathan reminds David of God's word. It comes over and over and over. And this is such a privilege for David. Not only so he can know God's guidance, but he can be reminded of God's promises because that's what Jonathan does. Jonathan says to David, I know God has made you king. And that is the privilege we have as God's people. We can taste and see the goodness of God in giving us his word. How many times have you had it where in the midst of some season of suffering, you've had someone or in church, uh, someone read or in church something preached, which just is the very thing you need to hear? could happen in a devotion that you're reading or a friend who might come to you and share scripture with you. It's happened like countless times in my life. I'm sure it's happened in your life. Taste and see the goodness of God. And see, this is how David experiences God in the midst of his trial. Again, I want to read to you a verse from Psalm 34, which is, you know, a psalm of David in the midst of this. This is what he says. He says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Have you tasted and seen God's goodness in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trials? I'm sure that there are many people here who could nod their head and go, Yeah, I, I, I know that. 
And if, if you're sitting here kind of thinking, no, that, that doesn't seem to be it for me, can I assure you it's not through any failure of God. Maybe it's that your eyes haven't been able to see it or that your taste buds haven't been attuned to when it has come. Because every blessing we receive in our suffering, it comes from God. It comes so that we can be not taken out of our suffering, which we all desperately want to have happen, but to sustain us in our suffering. So how are we to live in the midst of our suffering? Well, we're to taste and see God's goodness. The last thing I want to just show you uh, in terms of how we can endure suffering is simply to know that our suffering is for nothing, is not for nothing. Our suffering is not for nothing. And here I want you to come to chapter 22 with me. If you've got your Bibles, turn to chapter 22. Uh, here the, the, the episode turns from David to Saul and we see Saul is in a kind of a state of paranoia. In chapter, we see it in chapter in verse six. He's sitting under a tree and he he calls out to his men, paranoid that they're conspiring against him. He he wants some intel because he's worried that his own men know something about David and they're not sharing it with him. And so he asks them for it. There's a guy there called Doeg the Edomite. Now Doeg was there in chapter 21 when David was at Nob and he'd seen what had happened and so he puts his hand up and, and speaks out, oh I saw him with Ahimelech the priest Ahimelech uh, gave him some food, gave him a sword and so Saul calls for Ahimelech and this is his verdict on Ahimelech's life, chapter 22 verse 16, the king said you will surely die Ahimelech you and your whole family and then we see one of the most shocking, I, I think, moments uh, of the Old Testament, which is saying something, because you know the Old Testament has some pretty shocking moments in it. Look at what Doeg the Edomite does after being commanded by Saul. Verse 18. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That's Ahimelech the priest. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to sword Nob, the town of the priest, with its men and women, its children and infants, its cattle, its sheep and its donkeys. Now this is a, a, a horrific story. Uh, it's a story of just absolute brutality. It's a story of great evil. Remember a couple of chapters ago, Saul was instructed to, to totally destroy the Amalekites, God's enemies, and he doesn't do it. But here... He carries it out on God's priests. That's incredibly wicked, what he's just done. And Doag is incredibly wicked for doing it. It's an act of evil carried out by evil men. But here's the thing, and this takes some, this takes some digesting, I think. In doing that, they're actually fulfilling the word of God. Now, you might be thinking, what, if, what do you mean? Well, I want you to just to listen to 1 Samuel 2. Remember that the priests in, in early in 1 Samuel were corrupt and there was a word of judgment spoken to Eli, the priest. And this is part of his word of judgment. Every one of you that, ha, the, every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength 
and all of your descendants will die in the prime of life. That was a word of judgment God spoke earlier in the book against the priests of Israel because they were corrupt. That's a tough word. But remember what, what God is trying to do is purify his people. Now, what we actually see here in the wicked act of Saul, I want to, I want to kind of, I want to reaffirm that this is a wicked act of Saul. Is he's he's fulfilling his word? Saul and Doeg are doing it for evil purposes. God uses it for the purposes of purifying His people. And see what what this does, and it's difficult. As I said, this is difficult teaching to digest is it actually shows us that suffering, the suffering of God's people is not for nothing. That God can even use wicked and evil schemes of wicked and evil men to achieve the very purposes that he wants. See, God is not surprised by this. And God is not surprised by the suffering that is committed against you. He's not. Why do I say that? Well, it's because he wasn't surprised when... The Jews, his people, put his son to death. Listen to Acts 2, verse 23 to 24. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, I think we had that read out last week as well. Do you see what it's saying? It's saying there was a wicked act committed against Jesus. People killed him. It was wicked. It was evil. But it was done by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge for the salvation of his people. See, Jesus didn't suffer for nothing and neither do we. God will use everything, even the plans of wicked men, to to fulfil his purposes. Now, we don't always know exactly how God uses our suffering. I think that's kind of one of the hardest parts of following him, isn't it? We want to know. We want something tangible to look at. Because if we can kind of point to something tangible that we can look at, then we could perhaps feel a bit better. Now, sometimes that happens. Sometimes you can know in the midst of your suffering, oh, I can see what is happening here. I can see how God is, is using this for good. Sometimes that happens. But sometimes it doesn't. It didn't happen for Job. He didn't know why he suffered. And it might not happen for you either. See, the reality is is your suffering might not actually be about you. Uh, this is a difficult, again, a difficult kind of teaching of Scripture to understand. I remember listening to a sermon once where the preacher said, when God does one thing, he's doing a million things. And we often want to know, well, if this is going on in my life, what, does this, what good does this mean for me? Well, I'm sure there's some good in there for you, but it might be that the good is somewhere else. And we just have to trust God. And I think what passages like this do is they help us to trust God. Because they show us that God's plans don't fail, that he always works for the good of his people. And see, what that does is it kind of puts steel in our endurance. You know, you know, you, you lay a concrete slab if you want to put a house down it, and you put steel in it, don't you? You put mesh reinforcement in it to give it strength so that when, when weight is put on it, it can hold. I think that that's what this, this is. This is, this is reinforcement for our Christian life to know that our suffering is not for nothing. God will use it for his good purposes. 
So how do we live like David in the kingdom of Saul, a world, a kingdom where we know we will suffer? Where we are to look and taste and see God's goodness in it and we're to accept and believe that it's not for nothing. And the reality is that's how Stan Dale, the missionary who was serving in, in Dutch New Guinea, that's how he lived. See, he died at the hands of those who opposed God and his plans, but his suffering wasn't for nothing. Uh, in fact, in 2010, 40 years after he was killed, the translation work that he began with the tribes was finally finished. And so for the very first time, only nine years ago, the tribes who killed him were able to read the New Testament in their language. Not only that, but many had come to faith in Jesus. Now, we may never know the intensity of the suffering that David experienced. We may never know the intensity of the suffering Standale experienced. But the reality is we don't really know what's in front of us. But what we do have is the good news that God is for us in our suffering, that he is good to us in our suffering, and that it will not be wasted. So let's pray that God would help us trust him more. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, and Lord, we ask that you would help us to know you more as uh, in the words that we have just heard. Lord, that we know that we would taste and see your goodness in the midst of our suffering, that we would taste and see it in your provision for us, in your small deliverances, in your providence, in your word, and that we may know that it is not for nothing and that we can trust you with it. Heavenly Father, Lord, teaching like this is often challenging and hard to digest, so we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that those who are in the midst of suffering may take encouragement and may have eyes to see your goodness and that they may look to their king, the Lord Jesus, as he suffered at the hands of wicked people. Lord, he suffered life in this world, in the kingdom of this world. Lord, that we might be able to be your people and we pray this in his name. Amen.